Um, if you have the same page numbers, page 14. If you have different page numbers on each side, it's page 22. New book, old book. And I'm thankful that they did that variation so I can clearly identify. Okay. Is their door shut? Are they really that loud? Wow. Okay. Good morning once again. We'll start with the prayer of the great fervent supplication. I will say that prayer if you would rise, and then we'll go back and read the litany in a, in a moment. The Lord our God, accept this fervent supplication from your servants and have mercy on us according to the abundance of your mercy and send down your compassion upon us and all your people who eagerly await your great and rich mercy. Amen. So we'll actually flip ahead because we read that litany and that prayer. So that prayer is on page 16 or page 26. And now we're entering into the portion of the liturgy, the brief portion that is focused just on the catechumen. So catechumen um, comes from, uh, it's, a, it's a Greek word. Uh, catechism uh, is also from the same root. But what it means is those who are, um, who are being taught, those who are learning. So the catechumen is the title, and I'll put it up here. Many of you have heard this word before, but... Um, Catechumen, okay? And um, if a person is just coming, is sort of wondering about things, we might say an inquirer. Catechumen, inquirer, there we go. Catechumen is anyone who is actively learning about the faith to become a part of the faith. So, um, and uh, there's, uh, in some churches there's a little prayer or a service that might occur uh, to seal that, but it's really anyone who has said, this is where I want to be, but has not yet been brought into the faith by baptism or chrismation. So these prayers are strengthening them for that journey that they are embarking upon. And the first says, Catechumens pray to the Lord. Then we turn the page. Let us, the faithful, pray for the catechumens. You see, in the, because we are all a part of one body and becoming a part of one body in the case of the catechumens, we are all united and so our prayers are for and with them. That the Lord will have mercy on them, that He will teach them the word of truth, that He will reveal to them the gospel of righteousness. This is all on page 28 or page 17, depending on your book. 17 if the numbers are the same, page 28 if your numbers are different on the bottom of each page. That He will reveal to them the gospel of righteousness. That He will unite them to His holy, catholic, and apostolic church. Now some people say, but Father, this is not the Catholic Church. Why are we saying that we're the Catholic Church? Well, Catholic is a Greek word. It comes from kat. We'll say roughly as with. And olos. All. Okay, so that's what Catholic, it's often translated as universal as well. But Catholic is a fine word. So um, properly what we would say for those who are under the, the Pope of Rome, we would say Roman Catholic, not just Catholic, because they're not the universal church. 
So if they say Catholic, we would say Roman Catholic because that's that's the flavor, however you'd like. It's under they're under the the Pope of Rome. So, but Catholic simply means universal. So this is the universal church. There's only one church. Why is there only one church? One God, one body, one faith, one truth, one church. And it says that he will unite them to his holy Catholic and apostolic church. This is God's church. Apostolic means uh, the, the church that was founded by the apostles. And um, apostle just simply means one who is sent out. So those who are sent forth by Christ are called apostles. And they were the ones that founded the church. And that uh, this is that church to this day. Uh, to give you an idea of that, uh, I as a priest was ordained by my bishop, who is Metropolitan Eurasimos in San Francisco. He was ordained by bishops. Those bishops were ordained by bishops. Those bishops were ordained by bishops all the way back to the apostles of Christ. This is what it means, uh, something that we call apostolic succession. So when we say this is the apostolic church, we're saying that this is the church that is uh, the successor to the apostles. Succession. Okay. Apostolic succession. So the church is holy, it is Catholic or universal, and it is apostolic, meaning it is founded by the apostles, founded by God through the apostles. Yeah. I've also read that Catholic could be called, could be interpreted as complete or full. Mm-hmm. So look at that. Yeah, so yeah, universal might not be the best. You could also say complete or full because it is katolos, with all. It's everything. It's complete. So and in our prayers and the liturgy, there are a couple places where we say the, um, the fullness of the, the church. So, yeah. Any questions? Any other questions? By the way, before I forget, um, a couple weeks ago, I'll write it down here, I talked about uh, apophatic and cataphatic, and I'm sure all of you remember exactly what that was about. Okay. So apophatic, so I'm going to correct it. So I was talking about this when I meant to be talking about this, and vice versa. So apophatic, apo means away. So apophatic is talking about the things that God is not. He is uncircumscribable, indescribable, ineffable, uh, uh, beyond measure. That's apophatic. Cataphatic is saying that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, God is pre-eternal. Any descriptions of God that are actually describing God. I said it the other way around, so now I'll try to get you to remember. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, uh, so we continue with this uh, litany on page 28 or page 17, depending on which book you have. <clears throat> so, um, save them, have mercy on them, help them, and protect them, O God, by your grace. Catechumens, bow your heads to the Lord. And so, again, for those who are not yet a part of the, the body of Christ within the Orthodox Church, this is a prayer that you should be really reading every single liturgy. 
because most often the deacon is saying the litany, the priest is saying the prayer during the litany, and so the prayer is not heard out loud. O Lord our God, who dwells in the heights and observes things below, who for the salvation of the human race sent forth your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So remember, that's the introduction. He's talking, we're talking about God, and then we get to our request. Look upon your servants, the catechumens, who have bowed their necks to you, and deem them worthy at the suitable time of the labor of regeneration, of remission of sins, of the garment of incorruption. Unite them to your holy Catholic and apostolic church and number them with your elect flock. That with us they too may glorify your all honorable and magnificent name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen. So the next couple of lines are the lines that we omit. So uh, the, the, the next two litanies from the deacon. All who are catechumens depart, the catechumens depart. All who are catechumens depart, let none of the catechumens remain. Now this should be confusing, right? <laughs> if we were to say this out loud. Because for centuries the practice in the church has been that uh, the faithful and those who are not of the faith are all welcome into the church. The only distinction between the faithful and those who are not is the receiving of communion, the receiving of the body and blood of Christ. So everyone's welcome in the church the whole time during the liturgy. There's no time when they leave. But for centuries in the early church, and partly this was to protect the body and blood of Christ in times of great persecution. You didn't know who was there. Um, that was a, a simple way to make sure that only the faithful are going to be there when the body and blood of Christ are, are revealed. So, um, so in the earlier practice in the church, they were actually asked to leave. And there's a later part in the liturgy where we see the doors, the doors, and that's referring to this as well. Yes. So why do sometimes not leave it out? Why do we sometimes not leave it out? In the pre-sanctified liturgy, maybe? Yeah, in the pre-sanctified liturgy, we do sometimes say it. For example... Uh, or in other churches, yeah. The, the day of your institution as the priest here, in that liturgy, they said that. Maybe accidentally. Yeah. I see. Oh. It's, it's perfectly fine to say it. It's a part of the liturgy, and that's why it's still in the book. You might say it's totally confusing that it's in the book and not uh, taken out if we're not saying it. But the church is not quick to remove things. So even though our practice may be in practice in this parish, you know, pastorally we've decided it's a little bit confusing. Um, uh, still it's there within the, the liturgy itself and it won't be taken out of the liturgy itself. Yeah. I don't know if that answers it well enough. So in the pre-sanctified liturgy, there's an even longer section of litanies for the catechumen because the pre-sanctified liturgy is during Lent and commonly people are brought into the faith right at the end of Lent before Holy Week. So for that reason, there, there are even more prayers for the, the catechumen. So any other questions? Yeah. Well, it's more just a statement. Yeah. On the monastery, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in, in the monasteries, they do still maintain this practice. So only the faithful are permitted in the church. Yeah. So the, the, the monasteries uh, tend to do things in a more um, cautious way. So, and that's, uh, and that's fine as well. 
So then, uh, following that, we have a litany of the faithful. All who are the faithful, again and again in peace, let us pray to the Lord. Help us, save us, have mercy on us, and protect us, O God, by your grace. Excuse me, and then a prayer. We thank you, O Lord, God of the powers, who have deemed us your worthy deemed us worthy even now to stand before your holy altar and to fall down before your compassion for our sins and those committed in ignorance by the people. So that's interesting. It's saying about how we are standing before the altar. Does that mean the royal we? Like I, I as the priest am now saying we? Or does it mean me and the deacon? No, it means all of us are standing before the altar. That's what we're doing. I'm just standing a little closer. But all of us are standing before the altar. So, uh, as we read this prayer, we're reminded of that, that we are all standing before the altar on which the bloodless sacrifice is offered. Receive our entreaty, O God, make us worthy to offer to you petitions and supplications and bloodless sacrifices for all your people, and enable us whom you have placed in this your service by the power of your Holy Spirit, blamelessly and without offense, with a clear witness from our conscience to call upon you in every time and place, that hearing us you may be gracious to us in the abundance of your goodness. So again, we are all placed in God's service. This is the liturgy. Liturgy means the work of the people. So this is our work and our service that we are offering. And then a second prayer of the faithful. So to get to the second prayer, you'll notice we get outside of these red lines. So it's worth talking about these red lines a little bit. Uh, If you want to, you can flip back to where the red lines begin on page 22 or 14. But suffice it to say, there's a little note there that says, if the following litanies are not said, we proceed to this other page. So in the common practice in um, the, the Greek Orthodox churches, these litanies are not said. So this parish is an exception to that. And that's, you know, pastorally it's fine to say them, to not say them. They're part of the liturgy. Um, but um, it's something that has become a less common practice within the, the church, uh, at least the Greek Orthodox practice. In the Russian practice, these are normally uh, maintained. So we continue the second litany of the faithful. And I'll just read the prayer. Again, and oftentimes we fall down before you and we entreat you, a good one who loves mankind, that looking down upon our entreaty, you may purify our souls and bodies from every defilement of flesh and spirit and grant us without blame or condemnation to stand before your holy altar, O God. Bestow also on those who pray with us progress in life, faith, and spiritual understanding. Grant them to always worship you with fear and love partake of your holy mysteries without blame or condemnation, and to be made worthy of your heavenly kingdom. A lot of things that we're asking of God in one liturgy every single time. And this ends the series of litanies that we have for the catechumen and the faithful. And um, we, will, we now enter into the great entrance. So let's talk about this hymn a little bit. We are on page 34 or page 21, depending on your book. If you don't have a book, please come and get one. It's okay. You can walk up. Don't worry. They're right up here. Maybe we can move them to the back. Anyway. So um, the great entrance. I mentioned uh, in a previous class about how there are two big portions of the liturgy. There's what is called the liturgy of the word, which is the first portion of the liturgy. And that crescendo is where there's the small entrance where the priest is holding the gospel book 
and that crescendos up to the reading of the epistle and the gospel and then the homily or sermon right after that. Then, right after that, we begin what we've just started into, which is called the Liturgy of the Faithful or the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And this portion leads all the way up to the Eucharist. And again, we have the visual reminder because we're going to have a great entrance where the priest is walking with the chalice and with the, with the bread and the wine that will become the body and blood of Christ. So to, to prepare for that entrance, we sing this hymn. Let us who mystically represent the cherubim enchant the thrice holy hymn to the life-giving Trinity. Now lay aside every earthly care that we may receive the King of all. This is a very rich, a very full hymn. Okay? Let us who mystically represent... What are we representing? Cherubim. cherubim. What are cherubim? Angels. Okay? So we are representing the cherubim. How are we doing that? Oops. Cherubim. How are we doing... Well, but, but what? in what way? What? How can we say that we're representing the cherubim? What do they do that we're doing? Praising God. Singing hymns to God. That's what the cherubim do. Ceaselessly, throughout all time, they're praising God in the heavenly realm. That's what the cherubim do. So we're joining them. And we join them with the Trisagion hymn. Remember, we sang that previously. We read the prayer before that. So we're joining the cherubim. And then there are these two words. Mystically represent. Okay. So represent, the Greek word is ikonizmdes. It's a verb for icon. We can't make a verb for icon. We iconify ourselves. We can't do it in English. So we say we represent. But the word is the same root, ikonizmdes. So we are become icons of the cherubim. What is an icon? It's an image, a likeness, right? So we become icons of the cherubim, uh, representations of the cherubim. That's why represent is a fine word. I just want to make sure you see that connection. Now, mystically, so um, this has a a lot into it, okay? So um, we call the sacraments of the church mysteries. Properly, that's what they're called, mysteries. And this word in English has so many different meanings, it gets kind of confusing, because you're thinking like... Is this Agatha Christie? Is it a whodunit? What it, what's mystery, right? But they're mysteries. Okay. Um, sacrament is a Latin word. Sacrament just means a holy thing. So we use the word sacrament, and that's fine to use that word. But in Greek, it's mysterion. It's mystery. Okay. And this root right here, me, means something of great depth. So what's always implied within this word, whether it's mysteries or mystically, or we use this word a lot, because the, the Greek uses this word a lot. So it's faithfully translated into English, and we have to sort of relearn, okay, it doesn't mean that English word that we think of, it means this other thing, okay? So this root means something of great depth. So what we have right in there is we realize there's something really deep going on. And furthermore, the depth is beyond our comprehension. So that starts to get at the original definition of the word mystery, even in English. It's something beyond beyond our comprehension. Now, in our modern way, we think it's something that needs to be figured out. A mystery is something that we figure out. 
right? You know, you think of books and all these other kinds of things. Um, but in the church, it is by definition, by definition, something that cannot be figured out. Cannot be figured out. How does this bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ? Is it still bread and wine? Yes, it is. But it is the body and blood of Christ. How do two become one flesh? You watch the wedding service, they don't like join together, becoming one flesh, and yet they are one flesh. How does a person die and resurrect in the waters of baptism? We don't know. All of these things, these are things that we properly call them mysteries, because we can't understand what happened. All we know is God acted, and He did something that was beyond our comprehension. That's the definition of a sacrament or a mystery. God acts, and He does something beyond our comprehension. So the nice thing about this is that there's no expectation that we're supposed to figure it out. It's very freeing in that sense. Because uh, for the rest of Christianity, it's very much about how do I figure out how what's happening is happening. And then there are competing views. Oh, this camp over here thinks this is how that happened. And this camp over here says, oh no, it's transubstantiation. And all these different languages and definitions of things that we really don't have to, to face. So, any questions about that? So we are in a way of great depth that we can't comprehend becoming icons of the cherubim. That's just the first couple of words of the hymn. Okay? Oh, I'm sorry, it says mystically portray. I'm sorry about that. I didn't look at the, the, the version. Oh, no, it, it says two different words. One book says portray, the other one says represent. And both of them, the Greek on the left side is the same. So, uh, we represent them by singing the Thrice Holy Hymn, which we talked about in detail in a previous class. That Thrice Holy Hymn is three holy. It's just simply saying holy, holy, holy. Okay? So, um, this hymn that we sing, the Thrice Holy Hymn, is exactly what the cherubim are singing. And so what we say then after this, this, the hymn is to the life-giving trinity, So this is all the um, dependent clause of what? Now lay aside every care of life that we may receive the King of all. So we're doing all this. Uh, actually, it's not quite a dependent clause, grammatically speaking. But uh, we're doing all, these, all this, singing the hymn, becoming icons of the cherubim in a mystical way. We also, the second thing that we need to do is to lay aside every care of life, everything of this world. And this, this hymn, if we've come into the liturgy, hopefully at the beginning, maybe at Orthros, maybe it came a little bit late into the liturgy, when we get to this hymn, pause. Read this hymn. The choir is singing it in a very ornate way, so you may not be able to sing along with them, and that's okay. It's beautiful. We should enjoy it. Uh, if you can sing along, if you're musically inclined, by all means. Um, but at least read it. Read this. When we get to the great entrance, when you see the priest starts taking up the censer and starts sensing everyone, go, oh yeah, I should read this prayer and remind myself, I have to set everything aside. Everything aside. Don't think about anything. Don't think about children. Don't think about work. Don't think about spouses. Don't think about anything. Set it all aside. It's very difficult. But this is what we're being asked to do. Why? 
so that we may receive the King of all. We're going to receive the King. And the King is coming to us, and He will be brought forward to us in this chalice, and we will consume, receive the King. We will have the King dwelling in us. Isn't that far more important than anything else going on in the world? The King dwelling in us. So this is why we have to prepare ourselves. Any questions about that hymn? Okay. The church in her wisdom, of course, has this hymn repeated and said in a very slow way, all of this to help us remember what's being said. So, meanwhile, the priest says the following prayer. And this is one of the few prayers that is actually a priest prayer. So you'll see in the words of the prayer, it doesn't apply to the people. No one bound by the desires and pleasures of the flesh is worthy to approach. Well, that's actually referring to setting aside all earthly cares, right? No one bound by the desires and pleasures of the flesh is worthy to approach or draw near or offer liturgy to you, O King of glory. For to serve you is great and dreadful or fearful, even for these the heavenly powers. But nevertheless, through your ineffable and immeasurable love for mankind, as the Master of all, you became man without alteration or change and served as our High Priest and handed down to us the priestly ministry of this liturgical and bloodless sacrifice. So there's only one High Priest, there's only one priest, and that's Christ. And every priest is as a representative of Christ. It's not me, it's not, I'm just Matthew and I'm standing up there, but I, am, I have been placed here by Christ and in the role of Christ. It doesn't make me any more special, but in the role of priest, this is how we receive the mysteries, the sacraments, through the priesthood. For you alone, O Lord our God, have dominion over things in heaven and on earth, who ride upon the throne of the cherubim, or the Lord of the seraphim, and the King of Israel, who alone are holy and rest in the saints. Therefore I implore you, who alone are good and inclined to listen, look down upon me, your sinful and unfit servant, and cleanse my soul and heart from an evil conscience, and enable me by the power of your Holy Spirit, vested with the grace of the priesthood, to stand before this your holy table, and to perform the priestly sacrifice of your holy and Immaculate body and precious blood. For I come before you bowing my neck, and I entreat you, turn not your face away from me, neither reject me from your servants. But deign that these gifts may be offered to you by me, your sinful and unworthy servant. Now here's a really important line. For you are he who offers and is offered, who receives and is distributed. O Christ our God, and to you we send up glory together with your Father, who is without beginning, your all holy and good and life-giving Spirit, now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen. So I'll say that again. For you are he who offers. His prayers to Christ. Christ is the one that offers. Why? Because the priest is standing on behalf of Christ. Christ is the one offering. I can do nothing. If a random person stands at the altar and tries to say all these prayers, it does nothing. Because Christ is not there. Christ is offering himself through the priesthood. So it is Christ that is offering and is offered. He's the one offering and he's also the one that is, uh, is offered. He is the one that is on the altar. And he's the one who receives. Why? Because he's God. God is receiving our offering. We're offering to God. And is distributed. Christ himself is distributed to us. I mean, if that sentence doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. 
So, um, and again, we, these are prayers we say every single liturgy, so ponder on those lines. Christ is everywhere in the equation. Everywhere in the equation. None of it happens without Christ. Questions? Anything? Okay. We've got a little bit more time, so we'll do the completion. Oh, so what happens during this time? Let's talk just sort of... Uh, it's called teleliturgics, the actual actions that are going on. So this prayer is said, and then the, pre- the clergy say the cherubic hymn three times. You'll see the priest that raises his hands, and he's saying that same prayer and then bowing, and then saying the prayer, not the, the whole prayer, the, the hymn that I just uh, explained in detail. Three times. And then the priest takes up the censer and senses the altar and then senses all the people. And what is the priest saying during that time? Have you ever noticed my lips are moving? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> the 50th Psalm, or 51st Psalm, depending on which Bible you're using. But the Psalm of Repentance of King David. Remember what King David did? He envied his best friend's wife. And so he sent his best friend out in the, with the army in the front of the army, knowing that he would be killed so that then he could have his best friend's wife. Pretty bad. So, he, so in his great repentance with, before the prophet Samuel, he offers this psalm. So this is a psalm that we say in virtually every service of the church. Virtually every service. And something that all of us could say every day. It's just such a... And I, I, we'll, do a we'll read that some other time. But it starts, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your great mercy. And then it just continues to go through all of the, the immense prayers asking for God's forgiveness. So that's what the, the priest is saying during that time. And then uh, the hymn ends as the procession begins. So the, the uh, altar boys come out, and then the deacon and the priest, and we come out and we're carrying the chalice and the paten. The paten is the raised plate that has the what we call the lamb on it, the portion of the bread. And, and we process with that. Um, there's been a fairly common practice within the church, which is the practice of touching the priest's vestments. You probably see that occurring in the church. Um, why do people do that? Good, good. Not, not the poor person, the woman with the issue of blood. Yeah. She touched Christ's garment to be healed. Okay. So this action is an action that is properly done only as a prayer and only in piety. It's not something that people have to do, but I will, without getting into hot water too much, I will say this is a practice that we really should be reserving for those who are old enough to comprehend that it is only a prayer. It's not a novelty. It's not, ooh, I finally get to touch the priest's vestments. I get to see what they feel like. So this really is something that are people who are old enough to comprehend that, maybe teenagers and older. Um, But I I don't say that in judgment. I just encourage you, for those of you who have ears to hear, um, that... This is offered as a prayer only. So, because sometimes the practice can become something besides that simple, pious action of a prayer. Um, and so, I would discourage that. 
Okay, so the procession occurs, and during the procession, the priest and the deacon both say, I, uh, our parish, the deacon says in English, then I say in Greek, May the Lord God remember all of you in his kingdom, always, now, and ever, into ages of ages. Amen. So we turn to the completion litany. We're now on page 23 or page 38, depending on your book. And we'll get through that and the prayer, and then we'll call it finished. We'll complete after the completion litany. Okay. <laughs> so um, it begins with, let us complete our prayer to the Lord. So uh, just a little side note here. Names of things in Greek are very, very practical. So this is called the completion petitions, because in the Greek it's called the plerotika. And why is it called that? Just because the first word is plerosomen. So the first word of the litany is, in Greek, is just complete. The word complete. So we say, oh, that's the litany that starts with complete. That's, that's why it's called that, the completion litany. A lot of the different uh, things in our church have those names, like... Um, uh, we say Apolotikion, which means the hymn of, like, usually the main hymn of a saint or of a feast day. Apolotikion just means the, um, the hymn at the, the, the dismissal. Why? Because the first time we sing it is at the dismissal of Vespers. So it's just called, oh, it's that hymn that we sing at the dismissal. You know, and all the priest vestments, it's very much the same way. Our, our uh, cuffs are called epimanikia, the thing that goes by the hands. Um, our, uh, the little, uh, I haven't talked about these things before, but just briefly. The little diamond that I wear down here, it's called the epigonation, the thing by the knees. Uh, the, <laughs> the stole, which goes down the front, is called epitrahelion, the thing by the trachea, by the neck. So lots of words in our liturgical life. In the Greek, they're very, just very practical. Um, but then, so in, in English, we hear the completion litany, and we think, what, what is it completing? It sounds like something bigger or more important than it is. It's just simply saying what the, the first word is. Okay. Let us complete our prayer to the Lord. For the precious gifts brought forth, let us pray to the Lord. So they are called the gifts. Why? Because we are offering these gifts to God. For this holy house and for those who enter it with faith, reverence, and the fear of God, let us pray to the Lord. For our deliverance from every affliction, wrath, danger, and necessity, let us pray to the Lord. Help us, save us, have mercy on us, and protect us, O God, by your grace. And, and then we have this little turn where the responses are different. We, instead of saying, Lord, have mercy, say, grant this, O Lord. That the whole day may be perfect, holy, peaceful, and sinless. Let us ask of the Lord. Grant this, O Lord. So again, these are things that we can pause and ponder on if we think about it. You go home today, and you say, Wow, I just prayed that the whole day will be perfect, holy, peaceful, and sinless. What can I do to help that along, right? How can I enact this prayer that I'm asking? For pardon, remission of our sins and offenses, let us ask of the Lord. For things good and beneficial to our souls and peace for the world, let us ask for the, of the Lord. And a little caveat there, for things good and beneficial to our souls, those things may not look very good when we're receiving them. A lot of the things that are the, of the greatest benefit to our souls are things that are just very difficult. You know, you lose your job. Well, that's good for your soul. <laughs> that's what you're asking for here. You're not asking for things good and beneficial for my bank accounts. 
For the completion of the remaining time of our life in peace and repentance, let us ask of the Lord. This is the most fundamental thing that we have in our life, is peace and repentance. Be in harmony with everyone around us, and, ha- and be repentant, which simply means the ways in which I have been wrong, I recognize them before God. So this is the, the way we live our entire lives, rightly. And then here's a very powerful litany as well. For a Christian end to our life, painless, without shame, peaceful, and for good defense before the dreadful or fearful judgment seat of Christ, let us ask. So ask every single liturgy that our death might be painless, might be without shame. We hear of uh, deaths of celebrities that are very shameful, that are things where you go, ah, I wish it wasn't that way for that person. But we ask that we may have a, a peaceful end to our life. And then a good defense before the judgment seat of Christ. So that I want to pause on dreadful because we've encountered that twice and we'll encounter it again and again. And I usually change it to fearful. Because the word is foveru or foveros or some form of that. That's the Greek, okay? So, um, so fearful... Uh, in my mind, dreadful doesn't sound like anything good. I don't think there's anything good that we dread, right? Um, fearful is a little bit more nuanced. We can understand fearful as something we're just afraid of. There are, to divide it out a little bit, there are two ways of having fear. There are two ways of having shame. There are two ways of having um, many things in our life. So the bad way of fear is paralysis. We're so afraid, I can't do anything, right? Same with shame, same idea. I feel so ashamed, I'm just sick of myself, I hate myself, right? But there's actually, we can't just throw out those words and say those are bad words. There's actually a very good thing, and this is what this is telling us. Fearful can also mean what? Action. So again, over here is stagnation, is paralysis, we can't do anything. Over here, it's a motivating thing. It makes us realize, wow, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that's a serious thing. So whenever we read the word fearful, or in this liturgy book, dreadful, let's always remember it's this one form, not this other one, because we mix the two together. And shame, likewise, shame can be incredibly healing. If I actually realize the rottenness of my sinfulness and I don't despair, because that would be the bad shame over here, is that I'm despairing. Instead, I use this shame to say, God, help me, bring me out of this. I'm just a, a terrible sinner, but I know that you can work a miracle in my life. You see? So that's the good shame. That's the good fear. So we're not going to remove these words from the liturgy, but when we see that word fear, we have to understand the right way of, of looking at that. Any questions about that? Yeah. Oh, time. Okay, we are at time. So we're going to quickly read the prayer. O Lord God Almighty, who alone are holy, who accept a sacrifice of praise from those who call upon you with their whole heart, receive also the entreaty of us sinners, and bring it before your holy altar, and enable us to bring before you gifts and spiritual sacrifices for our sins and for those committed in ignorance by the people. So this is an, an offering on the altar. Just like in the Old Testament, people sinned, they offered something on the altar. We're doing the same thing. We sin, we offer something on the altar. The thing on the altar is fundamentally different. 
It's God Himself, because He has offered Himself. So we are offering God Himself to God Himself. And make us worthy to find grace in your sight, that our sacrifice may be acceptable to you, and that the good spirit of your grace may dwell in us and in these gifts here set before you and in all your people. Through the compassion of your only begotten Son, with whom you are blessed, together with your all holy and good and life-giving spirit, now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, everyone.